I'm Richard. And I'm Will. And together we're... The, the Irreverent, Irreverent Nerds! Nerds. Bum, bum, bum. Ash here. What's that, Mother? Yes, I agree their chances are slim. Nevertheless, I believe they wish to proceed with this week's episode. I believe it begins with Japan Jaunt as... Will Boyer will be discussing the book 47 Ronin in the first segment and the second segment on the Tanuki. Then, I believe the nerds will transition to a review of the 1979 sci-fi horror classic film Alien, of which, of course, as you know, Mother, I am the star. Oh, nerds, a warning in space. No one can hear you scream. But if it helps, you have my sympathies. Welcome back to another Japan Jump. This is cartoonist Will. On today's Japan Jump, we will be having two segments. On the first segment, I would like to recommend to you the book 47 Ronin. Japanese Tales of Vampires, Ghosts, and Renegade Samurai. Now, this book was originally published, uh, written by, that is, um, by A.B. Midford in 1871 and published under the title Tales of Old Japan. Now, this book has a lot more than just the 47 Ronin in it. It also has other stories as well as yokai stories. Concerning super, certain superstitions on page 187, however, talks about the badger being another shape-shifting animal alongside the Bakineko and the Katsune. However, I want to point out that having been originally written in 1871, this information is not correct. A.B. Mitford was unfortunately confusing the badger with the raccoon dog, the Tanuki, which leads us into our second segment. Today, on we will be talking about the Tanuki, or the Bake Tanuki, which is the proper yokai name. Uh, in America, we don't know about the Tanuki, so I believe that we just shorten it to Tanuki. But just like the Neko, that is the cat, it, we name it the Bake Neko when it is a yokai. The Tanuki is properly called the Bake Tanuki. The Bake Tanuki is a mischievous shapeshifter. They are pranksters, but gullible and naive. They may be a hassle, but are generally not evil intent or malicious. They are not badgers, as I said, but are canines who resemble raccoons. They are mostly indigenous to Japan and other Asian countries. There is a European variety of raccoon dog, but I am not here to talk about that today. Also, I don't know a lot of information about it. In pop culture, examples of the Tanuki would be uh, such as Super Mario Bros. 3, 3D Land and 3D World, Mario can get a leaf, which is a part of the Tanuki and sometimes Bakaneko Katsune mythologies, uh, can get a leaf that can transform him, that is shapeshift him into Raccoon Mario or Tanuki Mario. Uh, in the Mario game, Tanuki is incorrectly spelled with two, zero, uh, two O's instead of U. Uh, which is the Japanese spelling, T-A-N-U-K-I, whereas Mario's Tanuki form is T-A-N-O-O-K-I, most likely due to Americans not being able to properly pronounce such a Japanese word in the 80s. Anyway, 
So Mario can transform into Raccoon Mario with ears and a tail and can fly. And when wearing the Tanuki suit, having received the Super Leaf, he can also turn into a statue, which is also a part of Japanese culture and mythology as the Tanuki is often depicted in statue form at Buddhist temples and other places. In Ghibli Studios' Pompoko, released in 1994, our main protagonists are Tanuki. The film is all about Tanuki. In uh, Sonic Team Racing, Dodonpa is a Tanuki. In Zootopia, the Japanese version, the newscaster is a Tanuki. In Brand New Animal, the anime, our main protagonist, Michiro Kagimori, is a Tanuki girl. And in the Ninja Turtles, Tales of the Team NT by Nickelodeon, the last season in the Usagi Yojimbo crossover, Tanuki are castling uh, Usagi Yojimbo and the Turtles. Anyway, until next time, sayonara! Nerds, Richard here taking a moment to talk to you about the podcast. First of all, thank you so much for listening. For those of you who do listen, wherever you listen, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or some other podcasting service, we would appreciate some feedback, whether it's in the form of subscribing to the podcast there, or following us, or engaging with us in the polls that we have. This is on Spotify specifically. We have polls and questions on almost every episode, so we'd be glad for your feedback. Also... If you'd like to leave us a voice message, you can go to our website. It's anchor.fm forward slash irreverent nerd and click the message button there to leave us a note. We will, as I said, include it on next week's episode. So, nerds, reach out. Let us know how we're doing. And now, back to this week's episode. Nerds. Nerds. Welcome to another episode of the Irreverent Nerds Podcast. (laughs) So, Will and I just finished the 1979 classic sci-fi horror film, Alien. Classic. One of the greats. A work of culture. Will's first time, at least since you were a kid anyway, watching the whole thing through, Correct. Yeah, I I mean, I've definitely seen some of the more action-packed scenes and passing on TV um, throughout the years growing up, but I don't know, I didn't know whether or not I'd actually seen the whole movie all the way from start to finish, and I'm going to go ahead and say no, but there's definitely scenes I remember, like the chestburster scene, the, um, the things like the, the, the face hugger. Those, at least, that's what my brain latched onto throughout the years. Yeah, and I think... drop downs. Like, I knew about some of the classic scenes as well, even before I saw it. Like, I'm pretty sure I heard about the chestburster at some point before I saw the film. The first time I saw it was 2014. So I was in my early 30s before I ever saw it. It was a lot more recent. You, <laughs> yeah, like that was, and I've seen it probably three or four times since then. This would be either the fifth or sixth time I've watched it. Um, just purchased it on Blu ray, got a, a used Blu ray. I think this is a, like a 
the 35th anniversary edition. Cool. It comes with some artwork from Giger. And a really awesome comic book. Yeah, and a comic book version of the film. It's which, somewhere. Oh, here it is. Which uh, is written and illustrated by Archie Goodwin and Walter Simonson. So yeah, they did a good job on the art. Uh, Will was looking through it earlier as well. I read it earlier today. and Great. It follows the storyline pretty closely. It, it makes a few little changes and additions and shows something vi- some things visually that the film... Alright, so before we jump into our review, we're just going to give a few details about this film. So as we mentioned, it came out in 1979. It was directed by Ridley Scott. The writer's screenplay was by Dan O'Bannon, story by Ronald Shusett. And some of our big-time stars, Sigourney Weaver in as Ripley, which I believe this was her movie debut. Uh, pretty imp- pretty darn impressive for a film debut, I'd say. Really? Yeah. This is yeah. Sigourney Weaver's film debut? This was her first movie. Um, now, she may have been in some TV shows or oh, something okay. like that beforehand. Okay. I'm not totally sure. But this was her first film, from what I understand. I mean, I've always seen her as a professional actress, Obviously, she had to have her start somewhere. I just didn't know it was this, but she is famous for it, absolutely. Yeah, and, and she was a lot younger than Ghostbusters. I think she was tw- well, not really. This well, only came out. Younger. This only came out five years before Ghostbusters. So yeah, you're right. I think uh, she Math was. Is not strong I believe she was 26 when this film came out, and so she would have been 31 when Ghostbusters came out. I was just thinking it was the 70s. <laughs> yeah, it was 79, so it was just. Right at the end of the decade. Uh, this film also starred Tom Skerritt as Dallas, John Hurt as Kane, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, Ian Holm as Ash, Yafet Koto as Parker, Helen Norton as the voice of Mother, and Bolaji Badejo as the alien. Also, it says here, Eddie Powell was uncredited as the alien. So I think they had uh. two guys... Well, Balaji Badejo, uh, legend has it, I don't know if it's legend, but I've heard the story told that Ridley Scott, either Ridley Scott or someone from his production team, discovered this guy in a coffee shop. He was just like in a coffee shop or a restaurant or something. The dude was like almost seven foot tall and very thin. And they're like, hey, would you want to be in a movie? They just needed someone to to wear the suit who was tall, <laughs> could fit into it. So he definitely added an element to the film. I don't, I, I don't know that he was ever in another film, um, but that's a pretty cool start. It's like just some dude's like, hey, want to be in a film? Nope, this is the only one he was ever in. So I guess he had no interest in acting. And one might say that he didn't. I suppose he did act, but like you know, he doesn't get any FaceTime in this. But it's pretty cool. All right, so that is a little bit about the cast. Will future Richard here interjecting for just a moment. So I need to spice this up a bit. So here goes. Commercial space tug Nostromo is returning to Earth with a seven-member crew in stasis. <laughs> Captain Talos. <laughs> Executive Officer Kane, Warrant Officer Ripley, Navigator Lambert, Science Officer Ash, and Engineers Parker and Brett, detecting a transmission from a nearby moon, 
the ship—that's no moon. The ship's computer mother awakens the crew. Per company policy requiring any potential distress signal be investigated, they land on the moon despite Parker's protests, sustaining damage from its atmosphere and rocky landscape. Engineers stay on board for repairs while Dallas Kane and Lambert investigate the terrain. They discover the signal originates from a derelict alien ship and enter it, losing contact with the Nostromo. Ripley deciphers part of the transmission, determining it is a warning, but cannot relay the information to those on the derelict ship. Meanwhile, Kane discovers a chamber containing hundreds of large egg-like objects. When he touches one, a creature springs out, penetrates his helmet, and attaches itself to his face. Dallas and Lambert carry the unconscious Kane back to the Nostromo. As acting senior officer, Ripley refuses to let them aboard, citing quarantine regulations, but Ash overrides her decision and lets them inside. Ash attempts to remove the creature from Kane's face, but stops when he discovers that it's extremely corrosive acidic blood could hurt Kane and potentially damage the hole. It later freely detaches and is found dead. The ship is partially repaired and the crew continue their journey back to Earth. Kane awakens with some memory loss, but seems to be otherwise unharmed. During a final crew meal before returning to stasis, he suddenly chokes and convulses. A small alien creature bursts from Kane's chest, killing him, and escapes into the ship, with Ash dissuading the rest from killing it. After ejecting Kane's body out of an airlock, the crew attempts to locate the creature with tracking devices and capture it with nets electric prods, and flamethrowers. Brett follows the crew's cat, Jones, into a landing leg compartment where the now fully grown alien attacks Brett and disappears with his body. After a heated discussion, the crew decide the creature must be in the air ducts. Dallas enters the ducts, intending to force the monster into an airlock, but it ambushes and seemingly kills him. Lambert, realizing that the alien intends to aggressively kill the crew one by one, implores the others to abandon the ship and escape in its small shuttle, but Ripley, now in command, explains it will not support four people and insists on continuing Dallas's plan of flushing out the alien. Accessing Mother, Ripley discovers the company has secretly ordered Ash to return the alien with the crew considered expendable. She confronts Ash, who tries to choke her to death. Parker intervenes and clubs Ash, knocking his head loose and revealing him as an android. He, Ripley, and Lambert reactivate Ash's head and they learn that he was assigned to ensure the creature's survival. He expresses admiration for the creature's psychology, unhindered by conscience or morality, and taunts them about their chances of survival. Ripley cuts off his power and Parker incinerates him. The remaining crew decide to self-destruct the Nostromo and escape in the shuttle. However, Parker and Lambert are ambushed and killed by the creature while gathering life support supplies. Ripley initiates the self-destruct sequence but finds the alien blocking her path to the shuttle. She retreats and attempts unsuccessfully to abort the self-destruct. With no further options, she flees to the shuttle carrying Jones and narrowly escapes as the Nostromo explodes. As Ripley prepares for stasis, she discovers that the alien is aboard, having wedged itself into a narrow space. She dons a spacesuit and uses gas to flush the creature out. 
It approaches Ripley, but before it can attack, she opens an airlock door, almost blasting it into space. However, it hangs on by gripping the frame. Ripley shoots it with a grappling hook, but the gun catches as the airlock door closes, tethering the alien to the shuttle. It pulls itself into an engine exhaust, but Ripley fires the engines, blasting it away into deep space. After recording the final log entry, she places Jones and herself into stasis for the trip back to Earth. Future Richard back here. Hopefully that added a little bit of ambiance. Enjoy the rest of the show. That was a long plot synopsis. Yeah, very thorough. <laughs> Thank you, Wikipedia, authored by anonymous people. So, I'm going to read some trivia here. This is coming from imdb.com, which has multiple contributors. So, Wait. according to imdb.com, the blue laser lights that were used in the alien ship's egg chamber were borrowed from The Who. The Who? The band was testing out the lasers for their stage show in the soundstage next door. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's cool. The facehugger was planned to be painted green, but Dan O'Bannon, seeing the unpainted facehugger on set and noting how inventive its human flesh tone color was, argued for it to remain as is. Nice. Shredded condoms were used to create tendons of the beast's ferocious jaws. <laughs> Unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Gotta get creative in Hollywood. You know, you got, only got so. so much time and so much budget. <clears throat> I heard Slimer was a peanut painted green. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? It was conceptual artist Ron Cobb who came up with the idea that the alien should bleed acid. This came about when Dan O'Bannon ran into a wall with the screenplay and how to handle the last half of the movie. He needed a good reason for why the crew members don't just shoot the thing and kill it, but oh. still not make it an indestructible monster that can't be killed. The acid blood was the idea that solved this problem. Quite ingenious, I would say. Because, yeah, it has yes. pretty serious defense mechanisms. I mean, one of them obviously is... And spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie. <laughs> you know, it's only 43 years old. Yes, it um, is. So I won't feel bad if I spoil anything for you. You've had plenty of time. If you're listening to a review and you still haven't watched it, that's your fault. <laughs> but anyway, after, well, no, I guess this is before the chestburster. So John Hurt's character, Kane, has the facehugger on him. And he's there on the examination table after Ash against Ripley's orders has allowed them to bring Kane in and set him down on the table. The facehuggers are on him and they try... I think you see it move before they try removing it. Like you see its tail wrap tighter around the neck, which that had to be creepy for the actor. like Because it looked like it was the actual actor laying there. Oh yeah. Um, that'd be really creepy to have this thing on your face. And and then like it's wrapping around your neck. <laughs> you get, they, Some, somebody with a string or something is pulling it tighter. Yeah, yeah like that had to be a bit claustrophobic as well. I, I can only imagine. Um, let's see. Okay, so here's a, another couple bits of trivia, and then we'll go further on into our review. According to Yafit Coda, Sir Ridley Scott told him to annoy Sigourney Weaver off camera so that there would be genuine tension between their characters. 
Mikado regretted this because he really liked Weaver. Yeah, I've heard of directors doing stuff like that where they they will deliberately try to stoke certain things or create certain emotions. Well, for instance, in this film, you've probably heard this bit of trivia. The actors, with the exception, obviously, of John Hurt, who was going right. to have the blood and the alien yeah. burst out of his chest, the actors did not know that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah, that was one thing I did know. Yeah, like, that's a pretty cool idea from yeah. the director's part. Like, because he is. got genuine reactions from the... And I think he actually used, like, sheep sheep's blood or something. It was real blood, which is um, nasty and unsanitary. Yes, it is. Um, but effective. Uh, very effective. <laughs> yeah, so you probably die don't use real blood anymore. No, <laughs> no. I, I, I imagine you'd get in trouble for doing that. Yes. We were talking about <laughs> PETA earlier during the actual filming. Uh, when we were watching the film, I mean... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I heard about that. Now, do you think it was the... Did they not know about the chest booster, or was it only the blood they didn't know about? Might have been the blood. So I'm reading something here, and I, I can't verify this independently, but it says the chest bursting scene was not filmed in one take, despite the myth. Oh. The scene was filmed twice. On the first take, the chest booster did not make it through Kane's shirt, so the crew needed to reset and shoot again. Maybe it was just the blood they weren't expecting. Yeah, because the blood spurts through first, and and you can see particularly Lambert, like um, react like right. visibly. I mean, they could have just spliced the takes together and got the best reactions. I don't know. So the failed attempt is visible in the finished film, since Ridley thought it made it look like the creature was struggling to push its way out, and made the scene more violent. So. For the chestburster sequence, Sir John Hurt stuck his head, shoulders, and arms through a hole in the mess table, linking up with a mechanical torso that was packed with compressed air to create the forceful exit of the alien, and lots of animal guts, which, according to Sigourney Weaver, caused the set to smell horribly. The rest of the cast were not told that real blood and guts were being used so as to provoke genuine reactions of shock and disgust. So that's the part that they were surprised. Uh, it was real blood and guts. I, w- I was too. <laughs> Apparently, this worked so well that Yafet Koto went home in complete shock afterwards, locking himself in a room and refusing to talk to his wife for several hours. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's interesting considering, from what I've heard, he styled himself like the... The, the big hero which which he is in the film like like he's one of the last to survive and probably would have survived had Lambert not freaked out and froze right, like man. so she yeah. you know the fight flight or freeze response and what was his character's name how do I think about it I'm gonna keep calling him Yafet Koto um but anyway like Lambert you know, freezes Parker. He's called Parker. Yeah, for right. Parker. Um, but she, she has her body has a freeze response, and she just can't move. She's so scared. So he he has to he wants to burn the thing, but can't because she's standing right behind it, and she won't move. So he has to physically attack it, and of course it wins. Um, and she still has a chance to run and doesn't. Yeah, and ends up getting well the implication is she ends up getting raped and killed or or at least violated and killed which is pretty graphic i must have Uh, missed that part uh it's implied like you know i've 
heard about this in other contexts as well, like other podcasts I've listened to, but you can see the tail like go up. Oh right. Well I saw that. It's but implied. And then she implied? and then she has no clothes later. Well I missed that part. I mean you I only see that? her leg, like her bare leg. Oh okay. So it's okay. It's implied and, and I think it's reinforced because they they redo it in Alien Covenant. Um, oh. Which, if you ever watch that, I recommend skipping that scene because I've, I've seen—I have not seen that. I've seen Alien Resurrection. Alien Covenant probably not very good. This goes is a, a much little better film. Goes a little too far, in in my opinion, uh, was unnecessary. Um, but anyway, that's a discussion for a different day. So, will honestly, I thought it was just wrapping its tail around her leg to make sure she couldn't flee. But I, I think the implication went is over my head. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I would have... I didn't pick up on it the first time I saw the film. No. Um, but someone else pointed it out, and apparently that was the director's intent. Yeah. This film obviously has a lot of disturbing sexual connotations and illusions. I did, I did watch a YouTube review or two, and so I wouldn't have known all that if I didn't watch this other review. So I didn't really pick it up in the film itself, though. I didn't either the first time I saw it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I picked up on any of the... I didn't. I didn't. Even, I didn't pick up on the fact that there were several like phallic symbols kind of woven into the art design. Like I didn't even notice the first time I saw it. Like, but apparently that was intentional on the part of the uh, Giger, who is the art designer. Giger. Or the um, that's a nice name. I like that name. Yeah, it's German. Giger. I think. Sounds like a scientific uh, Giger. Giga, the Giger counter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Wait, was Giger Counter named after a man named Giger who invented it? <laughs> I don't know. That's possible. Well, well, we're getting off on a tangent. Yeah, that's side note. So, so Will, first time, as far as you remember, first time watching this all the way through. Yeah. What were your initial reactions to well, the film? Like, I really liked the film. It was better than Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which I've come to slightly forgive because it now that I know it was supposed to intentionally be a comedy, but anyway, that's a different conversation. So I noticed uh, the uh, the exterior of the ship is uh, is model, made out of models like the Star Wars ships. I really like that. I'm actually uh, wondering if uh, science fiction movies, even before Star Wars, had already made that a practice, because I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know why I thought George Lucas invented it. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, the exteriors and interiors are very excellent. They're excellently uh, built. Um, I don't know what it is about my age and nearing 40 years old that's causing me to watch these movies differently than I used to. I'm actually thinking about how they made it and just awing at the... the practical effects and the practical sets and whatnot. I'm just in awe of it, you know, instead of just letting myself be carried off into this fantasy, I'm actually thinking, as a creator, how do they build this? And, uh, yeah, you know, it's great. Uh, They had some really talented people working on this. Uh, The, uh, of course, I I really love the the 70s computer screens and technology. (laughs) I mean, even Star Wars, you can't have it without the 70s computer screens and technology. It's just, I don't know. 
thanks to these movies being made in the seventies, you just can't have them without it. <laughs> yeah, like the <laughs> Luke's not right like Luke's anymore. targeting computer. Yeah. And the I think the the little scene where it's like showing the orbital trajectory reminded me of Luke's targeting computer scene from Star Wars. Like it's exactly. like showing the squares and uh showing the trajectory path like to land on the planet I thought that was cool yeah so for I mean it makes me smile and, and chuckle and it's kind of like a comfort food in some way because it reminds me of Star Wars but but I, I've known for some time that that's just 70's technology they just didn't realize it didn't have any way of knowing or, or even visual, visually showing what technology could have evolved to um, now I've seen the movie Prometheus so I was looking out for uh, familiar things so yeah I recognize the spaceship I recognize the dead fossilized alien and I don't remember how many years take place between the prequel Pr Prometheus and Alien but I think it's like a thousand or so years or something rid ridiculous I mean obviously the alien died and fossilized um but it's also been a while since I've seen Prometheus. Um, anyway, I was just really impressed by the film. Uh, I'm not going to read all my notes. Cool. Uh, I loved how the uh, the chestburster moves hilariously like a Muppet. <laughs> Speaking of Muppets. Well, yeah. So my first memory of... of uh, hearing about this film or like having any I guess would you say cultural awareness of this film was as a kid in the 80s um, watching an episode of Muppet Babies really did you ever watch Muppet Babies yeah up? yeah I did um, I loved it for a short period had, had some toys yeah so it's like it's like the Simpsons of kids cartoons where they they're in a sense doing their own little I didn't think about that doing their own versions yeah. of movies each in almost every episode like they did one of like the african queen i heard they did ghostbusters i need to see that they might but have yeah. they probably did like yeah oh yeah these these little kids in the nursery you know the muppets and they go on their adventures and and one of them was like um on the alien spaceship i think it was neat it might have come out i'm not sure when muppet babies started so it might have been around the time of aliens it, that came uh, out in 86 but either way like it shows the like the the Muppets and this is animated by the way not actual puppets well, right. but this was animated cartoon that came out in the 80s shows them in the the uh, cryo tubes opening up and them coming out like it doesn't show any of the aliens because you know it's a kids cartoon so they're not going to creep do anything that creepy but oh, so that was my first that was my first burster. <laughs> no no chest bursting scenes cartoon chest <laughs> I can just well, imagine like Gonzo watching and I was like <laughs> ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I was like <laughs> uh, I don't know wow. could, could have done something it's <laughs> <laughs> like and when he comes to his full height Gonzo would be like he might have a future in the NBA <laughs> that's pretty good um Mikasa Zukasa no. <laughs> so I've uh Sorry, that was a Muppet Treasure Island reference. I don't know what the, my first cultural introduction to Alien is, the Alien franchise, but it is all over 
Tiny Toons, Muppet Babies, all those classic cartoons that we watched, probably both watched growing up, that uh, that that play on these movie themes and you know just parody parody and spoof them. Uh, I will would like to mention Spaceballs. <laughs> I still haven't finished that. I started really? it. I started it a but while back. You've seen the, the diner scene though, right? I don't know. Where the chest burster bursts out of someone and then starts tap dancing with a top hat and a cane. I haven't seen that. Uh, I'm sorry I ruined it for you. Yeah, you, you did. Can never watch it now. Huh? <laughs> no, I, I I haven't got past the the uh, Rick Moranis Darth Vader opening. It's great. Sick. I think so I got. You maybe, haven't seen the entire film. No, I have not. Like, I think I got maybe 15 or 20 minutes in. I forget what streaming service I was watching it on. Well, that's um, still good. But yeah, so uh, I've started it. But I've been aware of the film for a long time, but just never had gotten around to. Yeah, I still haven't finished it. Um, you, you must be right there, right before the chestburster in the diner. Could be, could be. Or you forgot it existed. No, I don't know. no, it, it didn't happen. Like at least <laughs> it hadn't happened yet. Um. So I'm curious. Um, I don't know what your memories are of seeing clips of this as a kid, but I'm curious what you thought of the character Ash. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't know if we would have enough time to finish the whole film tonight or not, so I did try to catch myself up on things, and unfortunately, I didn't know... You spoiled yourself. Yeah, I spoiled myself, so I already knew he was a robot. If I didn't have known that, it it would have been a legitimate reaction, because until he said he was collating still, honestly, I didn't know that... I didn't know didn't know if they knew in the film if if the, he was a robot and I wouldn't have known even the whole collating thing I think I would have struck would have struck me as odd but I don't think I would have thought he was a robot or an android uh, now what the review didn't tell me is why he was doing this you know fortunately I got to I didn't know why he was an android I didn't know whether or not the crew uh, okay. knew so you didn't know he was in on the I mean, you can obviously you can pick that up throughout well, the course of the film. But. I knew from the review that he was trying to get the alien back to Earth, but I didn't know why he uh, was okay. trying to get the alien back to Earth. And they never they never tell you for sure. They tell you like Ripley gives her theory that she's like, oh, they must want it for the weapons division. Um, That's probably fact. Just slip it in there. <laughs> yeah, it's like and that's her. Which I mean, it's it's all fictional story anyway. So yeah, you know. They never tell you for sure, so they could make up any any reason they wanted. But that would definitely make sense, knowing humanity's history with weapons. Dinosaurs put weapons on them. But yeah, that, that that's, that's pretty cool, though. Like Wayland Utani, like damn, you know, like crew. <laughs> all of their priority is rescinded. Crew is expendable. <laughs> and uh, which which brings up its own questions: How did they know these aliens were on this planet? Why do why would they think that it was expen the crew was expendable? I mean, this is the same universe as the Predator, and they had already visited Earth by this point. So, how many of these different dangerous, violent, life threatening creatures exist in this universe for this company to know that they might find one? <laughs> well, this I think, and the crew would. If be I'm not mistaken, where the Nostromo lands is the same planet. That you see in in Prometheus. Oh, absolutely. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Prometheus takes place on the same planet that the Nostromo lands on. So, um, so it so like that thing that thing came to land and crash 
where it was at um, because of what happened on Prometheus, at least that's the implication. Right. Retro, obviously, retrofitted implication right. from I Prometheus. Think I'm not... So that's how... Yeah. But obviously, when they made this movie, they don't... You don't know. No. And they may not have even necessarily... I mean, I'm sure somebody had an idea of, like, you know, just for, like, backstory for the film, but, like, you don't know for sure how they knew about the... Other than maybe finding the signal, but, like, how... You know, maybe that's all it was. Maybe they just had found the signal. But you do find out that they knew before they ever sent the crew on on their journey this particular time. Of like, so, like they knew before anyone got on board and left. And I think they were out of Houston, if I remember correctly. Or the money even found that out from the the comic. Like, so they left from it. like Houston spaceport or something. Flew up probably. Yeah. I don't know all the details of like, but this, whatever it was, like massive space oil tanker or something. I don't know what they were carrying. When it blew up, it was like three nuclear explosions or something like that. So it was (laughs) something quite dangerous, whatever it was. So I've got it. I've got it. They knew because this isn't the first crew they sent out there. That's, that's, That's another very good possibility, I'd say. They found it by accident, and then they knew it existed... And they wanted it. I'm guessing that this wasn't the first crew that died <laughs> trying to get these yeah. this alien. That's a good. That's a good possibility. But um, which it, obviously, you know, now Prometheus. I think you it know, creates its own problems in the continuity too. Yeah. But yeah, Prometheus. It does. Yeah. Like there's there's definitely questions about about continuity and like. It is interesting, and I wonder how much thought they put into this when they wrote it. Like speaking of the character Ash, like because you see, like even though he is a robot, like they don't give too much away early on in the film because he's acting just like a human. Like he shows, like I wrote down here, like he he shows some humor, he shows some fear. You know, at least the actor did. You know, Ian Ian Holm, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Um. I heard, I'm not sure when he passed away, but not too long ago, probably. Um, But yeah, like he shows a number of different very human emotions. So obviously he was an android programmed with emotions. Um, Now, you get a little bit of a hint that maybe Ripley and, what was the captain's name? Can't think of it right now. Uh, Ripley and Dallas may have known that he was an android like you just a couple little hints that that ripley either had known or figured it out before anybody else did i was wondering about that because she did she did seem to know at one point yeah like when he says we're both collating she doesn't seem surprised yeah and specifically she said you and mother yeah yeah so i was like oh snap does she know yeah i think Either she knew beforehand or, or she picked up on it, but obviously, and maybe that's just a, by virtue of his role in the ship, it's like need-to-know basis or something, um, Parker didn't know, because he's very surprised when he yeah when he hits the thing in the head and its head pops off. Yeah, but I don't remember <laughs> Ash ever going in there and typing on the computer to Mother. That was always the other guy with the beard. Yeah, I don't... 
I think the implication was he didn't have access as the science officer. Right. So why would Sigourney Weaver's character Ripley say you and mother? That's where I'm like, yeah. she, she must have known or figured out. Um, but it could be the he had some interaction with mother as the science officer. Well, that is true. But or at the very least, getting directives in relation to the science. Um, that is true, because the mother computer does say that she's access is denied because it's only for science officers, so you got a good point there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought Ian Holm, obviously his performance is, is classic, like, very creepy. It's like, you get and, um, in, in Prometheus, I mean, still, I think, the best performance, you know, the, um, Dang it, I can't think of the actor's name right now. He played Magneto. He plays, oh, uh, he plays, that was another Ian, wasn't he, it? Uh, no, he plays David in Prometheus. Cannot think of it. But anyway, but he um, did an excellent job of both echoing Ian Holmes' performance in, in some of the, particularly in some of the creepier ways and some of the inflection, but then uh. also making it, very much making it his own. But you're, are you talking, you're not talking about young Magneto. You're talking about the older Magneto, right? Young Magneto. Oh, young Magneto. Okay, so I'm thinking about a completely different actor. Yeah, and he's uh, Michael Fassbender. I don't know ah. why I couldn't think of his name, but he's he's an excellent actor. One of the one of the best in Hollywood currently, cool, in my opinion. Cool. Um, but yeah, he he knocks it out of the park. Obviously, honestly, he is the the highlight of Prometheus. I must say. Like you, I feel like Prometheus should have had a sequel, but it didn't. It, it did happen. It did. Yeah, Alien Covenant was the, its sequel. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't know where that fitted in the uh, timeline. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was okay, the sequel, yeah. so it, it follows the story of but mostly of David. Like, I mean, you do find out um, what happens to Elizabeth Shaw. Okay. As well, um, and then there, yeah. I'll, I'll put it this way: I was, I was disappointed um, oh. in some of the ways they chose to. I, I I understand Ridley Scott's reasoning and why he went the direction he did, and he was trying to I think set up the you know the original aliens or his alien in, in some ways. But like, but yeah, it, like it worked for David's character, but it was there's just a couple things that were kind of a bummer, uh. questions that didn't didn't get answered. Uh, I heard rumors that they were intending to answer them in, in the third film, which I don't know if it's ever going to get made because Alien Covenant didn't make a lot of money. So, That's bummer. But anyway, um, but no, I, I really liked Ian Holmes' performance and everybody. I mean, excellent performances all the way around. I think you and Laura agreed that the um, dialogue and the acting felt oh, yeah. very naturalistic. Yeah, it did. It felt naturalistic. I could tell that from the right after they wake up when they're all eating and drinking coffee. Yeah, it was very conversational. I always like that in a film or TV series. I want... I like it when it feels real and not scripted. Yeah, which is sad that Ridley was not quite able to replicate that with Prometheus. Like, Prometheus didn't have the same... Maybe it just wasn't as good of a screenwriter. It was a different screenwriter involved. I think it was the guy who did Lost. What's his... I can't think of his name right now, but... He was one of the writers on Lost, but... 
Um, yeah, it, it didn't. It just didn't work as well on, on Prometheus, unfortunately. I still enjoyed Prometheus, um, but yeah, it was not. Alien, in my opinion, is still the best. It's the first and the best still in the in the series, and and I've seen all of them now at this point, with the exception of Alien versus Predator, which I don't. Well, I've care, heard that those don't care to ever see really. I, I heard that some of those Alien versus Predator films were bad, but I want to see them one day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a freaking Predator. <laughs> I'm mildly curious, but um. Yeah, having seen Predator now, it's like I guess it could be interesting. Maybe the first one, like the first one, I heard the newer one was was terrible. Yeah, that's like, what I heard. The new one's terrible. Yeah, but um, yeah, maybe I don't know. go back to the whenever the first one came out. I don't know. When but it came th- out. wasn't there like two or three Predator films? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger was the first, and then was like Predator in New York City. Was there? Yeah. Oh no, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. I think he goes at. Was it Donald Glover? Yeah, fights him or something. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that one yet, but I've I've heard about it. Um, but yeah, that I haven't. I haven't. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't mind maybe some gl- clips or glimpses of it. I don't you know, think I've seen it. That could be something like we could maybe we could do yeah. a review of that someday. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we we like reviewing movies that you know we can have fun with too. Like like uh, some that are like so bad. It's good. Well, we could watch <laughs> Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> we, we've already talked about Dragon Ball Evolution too many times, and we still haven't seen that. But, you know, we don't need to hurt ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, we can go through a little bit of pain for our listeners. We can, we can we make suffer it. for we the art. We can suffer for you guys. <laughs> well, hey, we're, we're coming up on 45 minutes here, so I think we're going to tie up this review. Uh, we both, it's, it's late on a Thursday night, which we're recording Thursday nights now instead of Monday nights, so that we have more time to edit and Much bring you guys a, a higher quality product. Uh, I think that showed with this past week's episode, um, and uh, so yeah, we're hoping to continue that trend and uh, get things on track for you guys. So, Well, Will. Thanks for joining me Boom. for this film. Fist bump. It's always more fun watching it with somebody. Like, um, like Absolutely. This is one of my favorite science fiction movies oh, of all time. I must say, def- definitely my favorite of the Alien franchise, and, and frankly, one of my favorite suspense movies as well. Like, I guess you'd call it horror. So straight up, one of, um, I think one that strikes a similar creepy tone, without even having to bring aliens into it, is Moon. Which is Moon. an excellent hard sci-fi film. Like, is that is that an older film? It's it's newer? relatively new. It's okay. within the last ten years or so. I think uh, Sam Rockwell basically gives a one-man performance. Like the only other actor involved is Kevin Spacey, who does the voice of the computer, and that's okay. that's it. It definitely evokes like Hal from two thousand one. Is a that Space that Odyssey. movie where the computer robot turns against him? Kind of. I might. But two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, Hal does turn against. Oh, um, sort of, oh, okay. or at least he has his own agenda. I, I've not watched that in a long time. Well, maybe um, I've never, maybe I didn't know him existed then. Yeah, I do have that on Blu-ray, so maybe cool. maybe that could be a review, an episode, one day. We have we have a lot of episode ideas, and not enough time. Speaking of which, uh, next week, little preview. 
Dan Johnson is going to be joining us again. Absolutely. And Will, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about something Dan and I really love, and I mean Dan really loves it. Uh, My Hero Academia. I don't know if there's a lot of anime that he personally loves or indulges in. He's more of a me TV kind of guy, the whole Svengoolie thing. But he loves himself some My Hero Academia. Uh, as a writer and editor of American superhero comics and other types of comics, he really feels that My Hero Academia, despite being a Japanese creation really understands superheroes better than western comics currently do and he's very passionate about it so i would really i really look forward to hearing his thoughts about that nice so you guys here to hear that's coming up on next week's episode which obviously this you'll be hearing this on on wednesday so the following wednesday um that's gonna be what July 27th or something like that. Uh, so right around July 27th, yeah. I think if I that's oh, when shoot. that's when that will release. Actually, I'm going on vacation. I forgot about that, man. Well, no, that's uh, when it will release. Like we'll be recording it the week before, like next Thursday. Right, I'll be in town. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah. But I do want to make a quick correction. I don't know how much superhero stuff that Dan's actually worked on, but he's a fan of Western superheroes. We'll just put it that way. Yes, yes. I I saw that from his page as well. Cool, cool, cool. All right. All right, nerds. You'll be hearing from us next time. Peace. And sayonara. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Irreverent Nerds Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at irreverent underscore nerds, plural. We are on Facebook. Our fan page is simply called The Irreverent Nerds. We're on YouTube, The Irreverent Nerd. And if you go to anchor.fm forward slash irreverent nerd, you can support us for 99 cents a month, 4.99 a month or 9.99 a month. You can also send us a voice message which we may include in a future episode. Fellow nerds, until next time, make it so. Engage. Avengers assemble. I'm Batman.